0: The other part that I think we should be looking at is follow the trail of dead Russians. There's been more dead Russians in the past three months that are tied to this investigation who have assets and banks all over the world.
1: Welcome to Bots and Ballots from Yahoo News. I'm Grant Birmingham. That last clip was Clint Watts, a former FBI special agent and army officer, testifying before the Senate about Russian meddling in the 2016 election and the fallout. Clint is my guest today. So far on this show, I've looked at a lot of the pieces of what tech disinformation looked like in 2016 and what it might look like in 2018. That's included bots, online messaging, voting security, campaign security. But so far, I haven't looked at the big picture. The how of all this came together. Talking to Clint fills in a big piece of that. At least how it relates to what we know about how russia operated in 2016 how it operates generally what they were pushing for in the presidential election and what they might be pushing for in 2018. the more i've dug into this space the stranger the world has looked even my inbox is starting to get really weird especially as i've gotten closer and closer to the russia stuff and i'm hoping to tell some of the stories out of that in the coming weeks one final thing i've been keeping these shows short at around 15 minutes, but I'm going to let this one go a little bit longer because I think it has so many important pieces. Clint, thanks for joining me on Bots and Ballots. Thanks for having me. You originally started as an expert on terrorism, and that led you to the online space. Why don't you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yes. When I first started out, uh, even at the FBI, it was the period where everything in terms of criminals, terrorists, extremists, spies was moving from uh, analog to digital every bad actor essentially moved to the internet in the 2000s and i'd started there looking at how uh, extremists were organizing on the internet and and the move that al-qaeda was making is sort of their safe haven there Um, over time though that moved to social media and that's when you saw groups like al-shabab in somalia Uh, Really proliferate on Twitter and Al Qaeda in Iraq, which was very successful on YouTube. And so they were moving to social media because there was a lower barrier to entry. So you're watching Islamic State, you're
1: watching uh, Al Qaeda, and then suddenly Russia pops onto the scene. Why don't you tell us when that happened and what it looked like?
0: The Russian disinformation system, when I encountered it, was through Syria. And what they had done even before Syria. Uh, before I ever really encountered it, is they had started to use uh, an information system, uh, a disinformation system, even back on their own people. They would use the Internet as a way to sort of suppress any dissent and to amplify um, any support uh, for for their regime. And at the same point, then they took that on the road and they went and used it in Ukraine around the Crimea fight. And then the next stage is in 2014, they started using it in Syria or trying to push in English language that the Assad regime should stay in power. This supported their their ultimate objective of, of keeping a foothold there uh, in Syria. And so when they were pushing that objective, they started to use false personas. Uh, they started to use um, false narratives and, and fringe news sources to push that information forward. So in 2014, when I was watching the Islamic State and al-Qaeda sort of vie for power in social media, that's when you saw the message start to pop up that the Assad regime needs to stay in power and the signatures didn't look quite right. When we tracked them over time, I worked with two guys, uh, J.M. Berger and, and Andrew Weisberg, those signatures did not go back to Syria. They all went to almost like a uniform spread of personalities that seemed to be in the West, in Western countries. And so when we stayed on that storm of social media accounts, they always supported a narrative that was pro-Russian. Didn't matter whether they were talking about Syria, Ukraine, or uh, hosted different foreign policy issues, it was always pro-Russian. And they were oftentimes, in, in sequence, um, sharing content from Russian state-sponsored outlets. And that's how we got onto the Russian disinfo system in the beginning. And then it migrated over time and, and took on a much different character in 2015 and 16. Why don't you tell us what happened in the
1: 2016 election?
0: Yes. So we were watching the same uh, influence network, a social media influence network, and it was the same one that had pushed uh, a petition that was called Alaska back to Russia. And some of the accounts were actually tweeting in Russian. You know, oftentimes I'll get that question, how did you know? And it wasn't really hidden uh, in many ways. But they began talking about different issues moving into 2015, and they would talk about a lot of social issues, particularly in the United States, uh, Black Lives Matters protests, uh, law enforcement standoffs. Uh, and one of the issues that they talked about was Jade Helm 2015 that was remarkable. They were essentially amplifying indigenous American conspiracies in different ways that the U.S. might you know, declare martial law and take people's weapons. But what they were really doing was testing a new way to do warfare, information warfare, which was from their Soviet system called Active Measures, which is winning through the force of politics rather than the politics of force by helping U.S. politicians who favor Russia get elected and rise to policy positions. And they started to support different political issues towards the end of 2015. And they were doing this throughout the sort of social media spectrum. Um, Twitter is where we predominantly monitor it, but we pick up on it in Facebook as well. And it was essentially the use of of themes and narratives which sowed divisions inside the United States based on ethnicity, religion, uh, social economic status, or, or any sort of social issue. You know, it could be abortion or Second Amendment rights. And they were testing now where the audience's cleavages were so that they could exploit them and amplify them going into 2016. By the time 2016 had gotten around, it was very clear that they had— sort of four campaign messages uh, that they wanted to push. The first one was very anti-Hillary Clinton, and that was from the beginning. The second one was very pro-Trump. Uh, the third one was when the hacking sort of kicked in, which is that Bernie Sanders got a raw deal from the DNC, and you can see that in these, in these hacked uh, emails. That's really when we knew that hacking was starting to power influence. And the last one, which was very minor, was you still need to show up for Jill Stein. And so the equation was quite clear. It was how do we elevate uh, Trump to the top spot and and sort of suppress Clinton turnout uh, and and people wanting to support her. There was a second phase of this, though, which oftentimes gets overlooked in, in the media, which is going into about October of 2016. Uh, they actually had started to shift their their plan. I think they were building in in case of a Clinton win. They wanted to discredit her and undermine her ability to govern. So the the themes really switch from uh, political ones to the election is rigged and there's widespread voter fraud. Because the ultimate goal of the, of active measures is to destroy democracy. It's to erode trust in democratic institutions. It's to make people uh, fearful and not believing in their own country so that they become apathetic. And that was sort of a secondary shift that they, they pushed all the way up to election night. Did
1: this make a difference in your opinion? Did Donald Trump get elected in part because of Russian efforts?
0: Yes. I, I think just alone the hacking, uh, particularly of the DNC and the time to release uh, by WikiLeaks and DC Leaks and others uh, of hacked materials, um, offset the media narrative. If you you go back to the infamous uh, Access Hollywood tape of Donald Trump, it was immediately followed by the release within an hour, I believe, uh, of hacked emails to try and distract from that narrative and, and, you know, uh, essentially inundate the media space with other coverage. If you look at the DNC um, during the National Convention, uh, the story that was really overtaking the entire event were hacked emails uh, and and ultimately led to members of uh, the DNC having to quit, you know, during the most important time uh, of the campaign cycle. And I think in key states that you look at, um, the ones I point to in my book, uh, Messing with the Enemy, are uh, Wisconsin and Michigan. I think those are two great examples where all four of those political narratives uh, that I laid out, anti-Clinton, pro-Trump, uh, Bernie Sanders got a raw deal, uh, Jill Stein, we still need a supporter. All of those hit in such a way that just two states that are hard to imagine really uh, flipping towards Trump did, and, and with only a very small margin of victory in those two states. And that's, uh, those are places where Bernie Sanders outperformed Hillary Clinton. Um, those are places where you're seeing just a little nudge can make a big difference. There are other things to think about, too, which is it's almost impossible to prove one way or another whether Russia won the election for Donald Trump for a couple different reasons. One, we don't really know all of the social media data. Even to today, the social media companies are struggling to pull all of that content. I don't think anyone knows the full scope of Russian disinformation content. And we don't have accurate polling. There's no real dependent variable uh, in terms of polling to measure against. So on one hand, we have
1: russia showing a preference for donald trump then we have president donald trump who's doing things that from a historical perspective uh would have been unthinkable in u.s politics attacking nato praising putin is it fair to put two and two together here
0: yes you can't say that um one commands the other but they are symbiotic and and that is the the entire plan from the beginning the the plan was elevate people that share your foreign policy views and will do essentially your foreign policy bidding and support them and promote them. And the Kremlin did that. You heard Vladimir Putin on Monday say, yes, I wanted Donald Trump to win. Uh, you know, it was very clear that he, he doesn't hide it. Trump is supporting positions that are very anti-NATO, anti-EU. Uh, he has taken on Montenegro, which is interesting because... Uh, There are claims from uh, Europe that Russia tried to organize an actual coup in Montenegro and tried to set up an assassination attempt there uh, on their election day using the themes voter fraud election rigged. And so this has all come together in a way where whether they are colluding or not, they are working in concert with each other. Even to the place where Donald Trump, uh, from his Twitter account, uh, tweeted on Monday that the investigation was a witch hunt. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Russia uh, quoted the tweet and said, we agree. And then Donald Trump has actually used an anti-Clinton video on his Twitter account that was produced by a Russian television channel. So uh, whether they're doing it consciously or not, they are working together uh, to achieve common goals. This is where it gets really muddy
1: and sticky for me. Because, for instance, when the Russian Twitter account said they agreed with Donald Trump... In some way, wouldn't it be in their favor to cozy up to Donald Trump or to make it appear that they could cozy up to Donald Trump at his detriment at this point? Yes.
0: In many ways, what they're doing isn't just looking for an ally. It's actually bolstering them as strong, that we we will not fight back against them in the information warfare space. It is really a challenge to the United States in a way of humiliating us uh, based on what has happened.
1: Is Russia winning?
0: I think Russia's won. If you look at uh, what their goals were, um, you know, degrading or defeating uh, NATO, breaking up the European Union, uh, finding an ally in counterterrorism for their Syria policy, uh, and getting back, uh, you know, making gains against Ukraine— They've gotten all of those. With the exception of U.S. sanctions, there is nothing uh, left really on the scorecard, I think, where Putin has not made gains. He's elevated himself on the world stage. You'll hear European countries say, well, we can't count on the United States anymore. Maybe we should negotiate with Russia. That is a clear sign that he is ascending, uh, and Russia is ascending, even to include in Congress where he had... Uh, senators, uh, GOP senators, in Moscow on the 4th of July, uh, repeating Kremlin narratives that everyone does election interference and we need good relations uh, with the United States. That's that's exactly what he hoped would come from this, and, and he's achieved pretty much all of it.
1: When I look at historical parallels, this seems like an intelligence coup that's orders of magnitude over anything that's happened almost in the last hundred years, that maybe even going back to Germany smuggling Lenin back into Russia?
0: I can think of no intelligence operation and influence operation that's been more successful in world history in such a short period of time. Um, From the Russia perspective, it really started when Edward Snowden landed in Moscow, I think. That's how they sort of saw it as... Uh, an influence system of subversion uh, against the United States. And it's continued since then. And if you just look at Republican perceptions in the United States of Russia and the change that has happened just since 2014 even, it's remarkable. It's the it's probably the most rapid shift in, in U.S. foreign policy, public opinion that I've ever seen. I, I couldn't imagine a, a more sweeping change in position, even to where uh, last night there was discussions in some of the pro-Russia uh, um, Trump supporters that basically said, let's thank Russia for interfering in the election. <laughs> that, that, is, uh, that is impressive. Not only has, has Russia attacked us with an information warfare campaign, people in the United States are now thanking them for it. I want you to talk about a specific disinformation
1: campaign, and this involved a U.S. base in Turkey
0: in, in Kirlik? Yes, Inserlik. Yeah, with Inserlik, it was fascinating to watch. We had, we essentially maintained a key list of accounts that we watch over an enduring period. And um, on that night, uh, it was late July uh, of 2016. This is only a couple days after Trump's famous Russia if you have those emails uh, speech in Doral, Florida. And we were watching and there was essentially a narrative put out uh, and there were two uh, two similar but slightly different stories put out by RT and Sputnik News nearly simultaneously. It was talking about the dangers that were essentially at Inserlik base and that you know thousands are showing up. Uh, possibly to protest. There's increased security. But in the social media storm, and this is what's so important to understand about disinformation, is that base content then was twisted um, by these social media accounts in a variety of different ways, pushing a range of narratives. Um, What they were trying to do was essentially lever a disinfo campaign by using both organic content, social media bots or uh, uh, what we call computational propaganda to amplify the story. And they would use even hashtags and impulsing. So for the hashtags that they used were media, uh, which is very classic. You want to get the mainstream media to react to the story so that it sort of takes on and expands on its own. Uh, The other one was nuclear. Uh, A key component of disinformation is oftentimes to scare the audience or or get a reaction. And so any thought of a lost nuclear weapon uh, would trigger that uh, sort of a reaction from mainstream media. The third one was Trump, which was the audience they were trying to connect with. And the fourth uh, hashtag we saw pinged was Benghazi. Essentially, this is another Benghazi. Everyone needs to look, telling the audience what they should believe. And when we looked at some of those uh, accounts and we did the analysis, about a third of them were trying to look like Trump supporters. They'd have the same words in their bios, God, country, Constitution, you know, uh, Trump, whatever sort of fits with that audience space. And that shows how they were trying to get a reaction from a specific audience to an incident that was, you know, happening overseas. And ironically, uh, just a couple weeks later, Paul Manafort, the campaign manager for Trump at the time, on CNN brought up, why isn't anyone talking about the terrorist attack uh, in Turkey? And what he was referring to was this completely discredited uh, insulet campaign that was really pushed out in the information space from Russia. And it was confusing even to the host at the time because no one knew exactly what he was talking about.
1: When I think of that incident in particular... As a journalist, that inability to discern what's really happening in the world really freaks me out. Should I be freaked out? Yes.
0: Uh, Yes, because the goal of these disinformation systems is ultimately to win the audience, uh, keep them engaged, uh, but then keep them believing your information over all alternative information. Uh, One of the key things, I think Leslie Stahl uh, had said, Trump had told her, I need to keep discrediting you guys so people won't believe you. You know, they'll believe me. And that's the idea behind this entire system is to put out a complete alternative reality that keeps the audience, you know, in trust with the purveyor of information uh, and in support such that they'll support anything, whether it's true or not. And you can see this today. Uh, In our own country, it's already happening where people do not believe, for example, that children at the border were separated from their parents. Uh, You you see some of the interviews of Trump supporters, I believe it was in Minnesota at a rally. They thought it was completely made up. Someone had had made fake videos and made up those stories. That is extreme concern. I think we all should be in a panic mode about this because ultimately— Uh, the union of democracy breaks down if we can't have some baseline about fact versus fiction. Have you been targeted online or in real life? Yes, I know there was a hacking attempt against me because the FBI uh, notified me in, I want to say it was November of 2015, uh, through the think tank Foreign Policy Research Institute. And uh, they won't tell you the actor, you know, that's kind of how it goes. But it was right after I wrote about Russian disinfo for the first time. So I'm... A terrorist, you know, for years I wrote about a terrorist and none of them ever tried to hack, you know, or install malware and those sorts of things. Honestly, today I think the thing I'm more worried about is other Americans. When I'm looking at what's going on in the information space and who's producing disinfo, um, who's moving forward and advancing this, uh, it's those with more advanced technology. You know, Russia understood the art of disinformation and now everyone's copying their playbook. And in the United States, we're seeing political and social groups essentially copy that playbook, but adding more sophisticated technology onto it. Uh, One I would tell you to look at right now is the QAnon uh, sort of uh, misinformation, disinformation system that's going on, uh, which is getting people to believe all sorts of false conspiracies. This is the sort of future direction. I think it's deeply frightening to watch as people fall for these conspiracies and, it, and it, it can lead to violence. We saw that with Pizzagate. There was a standoff in Arizona. Uh, we saw the man who essentially was at the Hoover Dam trying to shut it down, uh, all based on bogus conspiracies. And, and so moving forward, I, I'm more concerned personally that it will be an American that will show up who uh, thinks I'm part of the deep state or you know one of these sorts of conspiracies. They am so much about the Russians anymore.
1: In March 2017, you said, follow the dead Russians, Um, in reference to a series of deaths of Russian nationals all around the world who seem to have financial ties to the 2016 election. Has anyone followed that path since?
0: Yeah, I I quit following because the path got too long, Um, and I was writing this book. But I think it's remarkable there's such a spate of uh, deaths in Russia at that time. And they've slowed. Um, And to me, that is so indicative of how uh, the Russian intelligence and espionage system works, which is over time, uh, if they think there are leaks or there are people maybe that have been uh, infiltrated, they will remove them or imprison them or suppress them. And I'm sure some of them died of natural causes, um, but I don't know which ones did. Um, and while I can't prove one uh, one way or the other, I think the example of the UK poisoning here just the past couple months is another example of how they pursue anybody they think might be a mole in their organization. And what we've seen over the last two years between the Steele dossier, which pulled from a variety of different sources that seem to have had very accurate information at times, And just this week, um, the revelation, I think, two days ago by the New York Times that there was such a deep or important source on Russia that uh, then CIA Director Brennan would have it sealed, the information, and and delivered in hard copy uh, to the president to try and protect the source, suggests that there was some information coming out from the very center of the Kremlin that said that Putin had, had made the decision to go after this information attack, and so yeah, I I don't know that the trail has ended. Uh, it will be interesting to see in the coming months now that the uh, hacker indictment is out there and uh, now that this New York Times article is out there if if the trail of dead Russians gets just a little bit longer. It seems like our own
1: leaders, and I'm talking about Trump in particular here, although not exclusively, seem to be running disinformation campaigns on us at times. Yes,
0: Uh, the playbook, and and this was my remark, I think, in March of 17, everybody thought maybe I was exaggerating, but was, you know, President Trump does active measures against his political opponents, essentially. it doesn't mean he's working with the Russians uh, and doing it. He just is doing the same system uh, against all political opponents and and anyone he sees as an adversary. Uh, And it's overt. It, It is not covert. And he he levers lies and conspiracies and, and puts them out. Uh, Trump Tower being wiretapped or, uh, you know, FISA violations, uh, some sort of mall being put in his organization. None of those things are true. But they have the end effect of uh, muddying the waters, number one. And number two, they erode trust in democratic institutions and confidence uh, that the American people have in the institutions. And that is a home run for Russia. And it helps Trump sustain his power, especially as an investigation sort of mounts and grows um, from the special counsel through the summer.
1: What is the 2018 midterm going to look like in terms of misinformation, disinformation, and Russian influence? Is Russian influence on the wane?
0: I don't think Russian influence is ever on the wane, but the full playbook they unroll depends on what the objective is they want to achieve. So I hear a lot about the Russians in 2018. I'm sure they're doing uh, influence to, you know, support President Trump and any of his candidates that they might want to see continue on and be elected. They've got select people they want to support. But at the same time, they don't really need to make fake news because Americans are making plenty of fake news they can just amplify or re-disseminate. The key to understanding, I think, Russian disinformation is when you see them initiate hacking. Hacking is a crime. Hacking is an overt act that can't be explained away. And when you see them begin to hack, they are signaling that they have an objective they want to achieve and something they're going after. So if you see that going into 2018, uh, targeted hacking coming from Russia specifically, then that suggests they're trying to make a move to influence 2018. For the most part, I think for Russia, the benefits don't outweigh the cost, meaning if they continue a widespread hacking campaign again, they're likely to uh, really provoke a, an even stronger reaction from the U.S. At this point, they're getting just about everything they want. And getting one congressman here or there elected or pushed forward is probably not worth that much to them. So until they have a real objective, um, I don't see them doing the same thing as they did in 16. I would expect them to show up, though, in 2020. Um, they are, they've not been repulsed. Uh, there's been no pushback against them. And they will definitely want one president uh, in office over another come 2020.
1: I feel like part of your core message is something much darker and goes way beyond Russia. And that is that this, this playbook is in public now. This isn't just a Russian game anymore. There's lots of people who are doing this for lots of different reasons. Some of them for monetary gain. Some of them for political gain. And this is something that's an organic part of the space now.
0: Yes, there will, from this point forward, be some bad actor trying to pursue a uh, uh, some sort of disinformation plan in the social media space. And the goal really in the future isn't to um, overtly influence, it's to covertly influence. If, if, you know, in the hacking space, they always say, oh, what if someone hacked in and turned the lights off? In the influence game, it's can you convince somebody to be unwittingly an uh, an ally for you against your adversary such that they turn the lights off for you? That's really the master stroke of of influence is is getting an audience to do something that's even detrimental to themselves. And so if you can convince people to take on an issue based on their biases and their emotions, and, and social media is a wonderful platform to do this, they will champion your movement for you without ever knowing that you were the hidden hand behind it. I kind of I call it social media inception, which is, if you think you thought it up, you'll fight forever for it, uh, even though maybe someone planted that seed in there for you long ago. What's the solution to that? I think the big thing is, for people to spend more time in physical relationships than virtual ones. It, it's hard to get. It's much harder to get duped in a real relationship. The other is, is really regulating your time on social media and understanding your information sources. And so I have always pushed the sort of nutrition labels idea for information on social media, which is an icon that shows up if it's a link on a search engine or, or next to a news story in a social media feed that tells you what's the rating for that information source over time based on fact versus fiction and opinion versus reporting which is let's help the social media consumer understand what they are consuming. Clint Watts, thanks so much for talking to
1: me today. Thanks for having me on. That's it for bots and bouts this week from Yahoo News. I just want to mention that Clint Watts' book is called Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. Special thanks to Leah Hitchens, my producer, and to Sarah Giletti for field recording. Please subscribe to Bots and Ballots from Yahoo News on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
0: I'm Grant Burningham.